last week, uh, we um, uh, started with part one of this study, uh, or this uh, particular message in the study called The Finger of God, and I'll explain why it's titled that in just a few minutes. But if you'll uh, pardon me, I want to just go back uh, and set the stage with a couple of items. There's no way that I can, uh, and, or you would want me to, uh, re-preach the last uh, several weeks of messages to bring you up to speed, although it's tempting because this stuff is so important and so, um, it's so powerful that we, we can, uh, there, there's a, uh, an opposition, I believe, any, a spiritual opposition anytime we begin to open up God's word and, and ask him for to, to reveal himself as our deliverer uh, because we have an adversary who doesn't want us to experience that. And so it would be good for us to have a lot of this stuff fresh in our minds. But the thing I really want for you to remember this morning is what we read about in Romans chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. I asked you to turn to Exodus 6 and that's where you should be. But in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, either giving us his own testimony or just trying to encapsulate what all of us feel, says this, for what I am doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do or what I want to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that what, that's what I do. If, uh, and then uh, he says, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. In other words, inside of me, the deepest part of me, I want to live my life in obedience to God. I want to live my life in a way that honors God and is in sync with his will for my life. But I see another law in my members or in my, my life warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity. He says, I've, he describes this condition of being restrained from doing and being the person that he uh, longs to be, the person he knows God would want him to be, and being compelled to do things that he doesn't want to do, that condition he describes as captivity, bondage, slavery. It's the same thing that the children of Israel in Egypt were experiencing. They were restrained from living a life of freedom, and they were compelled to live a life of bondage. And Paul says, in a spiritual sense, that's what I'm experiencing, because the person I, in the deepest part of me, that longs to be, to follow God and live according to his word, uh, that there's something battling against that, and it's caused me to live in captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Remember that. He says, he describes this condition, this captivity, this spiritual bondage, he, he describes it as death. It's so far removed from the life God wants for him to have that he says it's a form of death. It's so far, so opposite of what God wants for me to experience. It's not life, it's death. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he declares these amazing words. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And, and, and therefore sets the stage for what? Uh, for the good news that God delivers the bound. Um, and so as we come to this passage that 
is really about the 10 plagues. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with the fact that God unleashed 10 plagues on the Egyptians that weakened their control over the Israelites so that at the end they were able to be liberated from their slavery, enslavement. As we come to this, we come to it from that perspective that just like the children of Israel found themselves in conditions where they were unable to live the life they longed for and pressed into living lives that they didn't want, so we can, even as followers of Christ, find ourselves in the grip of something, a captivity, a bondage, a slavery of some, to something that restrains us from the life God wants us to live and propels us or compels us to living lives that we don't want. But the same God who, who delivered his people from slavery in Egypt is on the scene to deliver us as well. And that's the good news. I talked last week about this word deliverance because remember that's what Paul says, who will deliver me? So I talked with you a little bit about deliverance. Deliverance is two phases. Phase one is God breaking the grip of that which is on my life. And only he can do it. It's a solo act. In his power, he confronts the, the uh, spiritual forces that are at work keeping me in that condition of enslavement. He breaks that power. But phase two is me learning how to live in that freedom so that it's maintained and sustained. The children of Israel, we are going to see God breaking the grip of uh, slavery on their lives through chapters 6 through 12 and the use of these, um, uh, these uh, plagues. And then after that, we're going to see phase 2 begin where God begins to help his people learn how to live in freedom by having a relationship with him, by walking in obedience to him and all of that. So phase 2 has a lot to do with how they respond the choices they make, same in our lives. When we find ourselves in bondage, only God can set us free. And he will, and he does powerfully, amazingly, wonderfully. And there are testimonies to that effect sitting all around this room this morning. But phase two has a lot to do with me and you and how we respond to him, how we follow him, how we obey him. Now, <clears throat> as I said, today is really about phase one, God delivering his people. And <clears throat> I want you to see, we're gonna I'm going to read verses 6 through 8 in chapter 6. Once again, we did last week at the close of our message, but I want to do it again without much comment. Just I want you to see that this is God's desire concerning uh, all of us when we find ourselves held captive in some way uh, that uh, it, it, some form of spiritual bondage. He is the one who decides that he is going to set you free. It is his desire, his choice, that you not live, that I not live, that no one live one more day in that captivity that Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. Listen, therefore, say to the children of Israel, he's speaking to Moses, say this to them, I am the Lord. 
I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord Hear him say, I will do this. I will do this. That's good news. And that'd be a good place for an amen. 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 So how when I find myself and in, a, in a form of spiritual bondage, how does this work? How does this get played out? What does God do? How, how can I participate? How can I uh, welcome? How can I... Uh, invite this amazing God to do this amazing work in our lives. Well, the first thing is to cry out for help. And that's not always an easy thing. I'll explain why. It's, I'm going to ask you to turn to chapter 2 of Exodus. So flip back a couple, of, a couple of pages. It isn't until hundreds of years have passed as the children of Israel have been slaves in Egypt, building Pharaoh's city, cities as slave labor. It is until hundreds of years have passed that they cry out to God for help. Don't ask me why, but it seems to be a tendency of human beings who, that we will tolerate incredible levels of bondage and captivity in our lives before we will cry out to God. And we, will, we won't even recognize it. We, we will refuse to recognize it. Let me give you some of the things that uh, sometimes... We, we just, we tolerate depression, uh, rejection, self-pity, self-protection, control, fear, infirmity, um, anger. Uh, you know, what we'll focus on are the, um, the symptoms, you know, the, the ways that we self-medicate to deal with these things and so on. And that sometimes will get our attention. But we, we uh, most of the time, ignore the underlying forms of bondage. I was talking to somebody just the other day who's uh, dealing with depression. And look, I'm, look I know that there, is a, there can be a, a chemical or medical component to depression. And uh, she's being treated for that. But you are, not, you are a, an integrated whole, spirit, soul, and body. And uh, so anything that's going on in your life, there's other parts of you that are related to it. It's, it's never just physical. It's never just spiritual. There's an intertwining of those things in your life. And when you find yourself in some kind of bondage, there's, don't neglect the spiritual part of it. Now, as I was talking to her about this, um, we were dealing with the symptoms of, well, I, I can't, you know, I, I just I can't leave my room. I, I'm just crying all the time. I... I'm, uh, you know, I'm not eating, uh, I'm sleeping, all that, you know, the, the typical um, symptoms of depression, which are devastating. But what I was trying to do when I was, help, was uh, talking with this person is try to help them see behind or beyond <coughs> the, those, those uh, symptoms to what's causing it. And the spiritual uh, aspects of what's going on back there that's what God wants to come after 
in, in terms of deliverance. And it isn't until usually the symptoms get so bad that we are just overwhelmed by them that we will cry out to God for help with the stuff beyond there. But that's where it begins. That's where it begins. Chapter 2, verse 23. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. And it says that God begins to respond to their cry. However, he's already been, involved, been preparing the mode of their deliverance and preparing Moses for, to be the one who will guide them out. And so the, the, the thing is that God is not suddenly, when you, things get so bad that you cry out to him for help, God is not suddenly, oh, I didn't realize. No, God is already, he's waiting ready, prepared. The, the tomb is empty today because our Savior has risen from the dead, triumphing over everything that would ever oppose us. He's ready to work deliverance in our lives when we cry out to him. But that's where it begins. And sometimes we have to just, uh, you know, kind of Get to that place, sadly enough, where things are just so uncomfortable. The symptoms are so bad that we will reach out to God. Nevertheless, that's where it'll begin. And God never upbraids us. He, said, well, it's about, he never says, well, it's about time. No, he's ready. He's ready for you today to move on your behalf. But then what happens is that a battle begins. Exodus chapter 7 now, flip back over there. Exodus 7 verse 4. God says to Moses, But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. He says there's going to be conflict, Moses. Pharaoh is not going to just lay down and let you go. And dear one, not, not, neither is the enemy of your soul. He likes ruining your life. And he's not going to just back off because, you know, you get, you cry out to God. There will be a battle. There will be a battle. Now, I don't, I can't explain exactly why that is because our God is sovereign. And he, the cross of Christ, the shed blood of Jesus, the empty tomb today are forever the symbols of his ultimate sovereignty and triumph over everything. But I know that when it comes to spiritual conflict, which is what we're talking about, there is a battle. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, forces, demonic forces in the heavenly realms. There is a battle. And so don't be disturbed by that. When you cry out to God for help with the issues of your life, the places of bondage where God has, or where the enemy has gotten a grip on your life, don't be uh, disturbed by the fact that it feels like there's some kind of battle that's going on. Yes, there is. It's a battle for your freedom, and God will win it. Has won it. Now, <clears throat> Another thing to take note of as God moves through this process of delivering his people is that things get worse before they get better. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but this is almost always true. In our own lives, when we come to these points of, of re inviting God to set us free from, from um, uh, issues of bondage in our lives, things will almost always seem to get better or worse before they get better. 
the first two plagues, which are the turning of the Nile River water to blood and the release of hordes of frogs on the people, and you, know, you can imagine the misery unleashed by those two plagues. Um, and then the third one, the uh, swarms of lice or gnats, whatever your translation describes, however it's described there, those first three of the 10 plagues were visited on the people of Israel as well as the Egyptians. And so get this. Moses shows up and he says, hey, I've come in the name of the Lord to set you free from slavery. He goes before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, heck no, I'm not going to do that. In fact, I'm going to make things worse. They're going to have to make bricks without straw. And now the people of Israel hate Moses because he's made their lives unbearably worse. And now he, he unleashes these plagues. He, he, the water in the Nile turns to blood. They are affected by that as well. Frogs are everywhere. They are affected by that as well. Lice everywhere. They're affected by that as well. And on top of that, the first two plagues, the blood and the frogs, Pharaoh's magicians duplicate them. So the people of Israel are in some seriously bad shape, and you can imagine they might be a little ticked off with God as well as Moses. And I, from, you know, just years of experience of walking with people through the process of God setting them free from points of spiritual bondage in their life, I've noticed, and in my own life as well, that often things seem to get worse before they get better. Because the enemy doesn't want to let go. Hell pushes back. Think about Jesus when he came to the, to the region of the ten cities and he's confronted by this uh, gathering demoniac, this guy that's just, you know, wild and crazy, breaks the, the chains that they've used to bind him. He's naked, he's out of his mind, possessed of a demonic spirit or spirits. And he comes to confront Jesus as Jesus is getting out of the boat, bringing the gospel to this people where he had never been before. This guy comes rushing at him, and it tells us that Jesus cast that spirit out of it, commanded that spirit to come out of him, and that spirit talks back to Jesus. He says, who are you? Leave us alone. Why are you bothering us? And then... The Spirit says, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I, I'll, let's, let's strike a bargain here. I'll leave this guy if you'll send us into those pigs over there. Hell pushes back. Think about when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and there's this, this boy who's been tormented um, with, uh, his whole life, uh, his father says, by a spirit that throws him into the water and in the fire and um, he's, his father's asking for help, and, and Jesus commands this spirit to come out of this boy. Br he commands that this bondage be broken. What happens? The spirit on its way out throws the boy on the ground and cries out. Hell pushes back. So it shouldn't surprise us that when we have those, when we come in desperation to, to God and invite him to deliver us that things might seem a little more difficult. If part of the symptoms of your bondage have to do with self-medication, the thing that drives you to the Lord in the first place to invite his, his deliverance is that you, you know, uh, 
indulge in some sort of activity, you know, using food, drugs, sex, television, whatever, to self-medicate, it would not be surprising to me when you ask the Lord to bring deliverance to your life that that temptation might get stronger and you find yourself actually indulging or engaging in that activity more. But the story's not over yet because hell will push back. But get this. With the third plague, the first two, of the, uh, first two plagues, Pharaoh's magicians duplicated. Third plague, the lice, they can't. And they say in chapter 8, um, excuse me, yeah, chapter 8, verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. In other words, this is the act of God. These are the priests of these false gods, the idolatrous, uh, the idols of, uh, of Egypt. These are the priests, these magicians, and they say, wait a minute. We, this is the finger of God. And from, this is a turning point. From here on, now hell's going to be on its back heels, on its heels. The, the grip that of slavery on the, on the people of Israel is going to begin to be shaken loose. This is the turning point, and so it is in our lives and the lives of those we minister to when you come to that place where you have asked the Lord to set you free from whatever it is that's holding you in bondage. Things might get worse before they get better, but there will be a turning point as that, that hold, that grip, has to begin to loosen in the face of the finger of God. The next thing I want you to see is that uh, beginning with the fourth plague, um, which is flies, the f I'm not going to go through all of them, but the fourth plague is flies. Beginning with the fourth plague, God makes a distinction between the Israelis and the Egyptians. From here on, the plagues will only affect the Egyptians, not the Israelis. This is important, verse 23 of chapter 8. I will make a difference between my people and your people. That word difference in my uh, English Bible, I will make a difference between my people and your people, that word literally translated from the Hebrew would be deliverance. I will make a deliverance between my people and your people. And God is saying, from here on, I'm going to disentangle your identity from your bondage. Listen. We, there's a, in, in Leviticus chapters 19 and 20, we won't go there, the Bible talks about familiar spirits. The, the demonic entities that are behind the, the, the uh, bondages that... Uh, that we struggle with. The Bible describes them as familiar spirits. In other words, they are so familiar to us. They've been a part of our lives for so long that they seem like part of us, family. And um, the problem with that is that we start, then we begin to sort of tolerate them and, uh, or tolerate it. I'll give you an example. Like I was talking to a woman earlier this morning. Who was, who was telling me about uh, the fact that in their family, 
there's a lot, of, a lot of expression of anger. Anger is a problem in their family. But instead of dealing with it as, as a bondage, something that God wants to loosen the grip of on their lives, what they've come to say is, this is what they say to each other, oh, well, that's just how we are. That's just how we do things in our family. And you've heard stuff like that before. Oh, we're just loud. Or, oh, we just, you know, we fight, but we, you know, we always make up. Or, you know, and so we'll excuse these things that are really destructive to our lives because they've become so familiar to us that they get entangled up in our identity and how we see ourselves. So as God begins to work deliverance on, the, on behalf of his people, he has to separate that out and begin to cause his people to see themselves apart from their bondage. No, this isn't who you are. You are not slaves. And then the next thing we need to see here is that uh, over the course of the, the um, remaining plagues, the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth plagues, God is building the faith of his people. After that point of the, of the third plague when there's this turning point where even the priests of, of the false gods in Egypt admit this is the finger of God and now they're, they're kind of on their, their heels. From that point on, God begins to separate his people out, disentangle their identity from their bondage. Then God begins to strengthen their ability to trust him because that's what it's, this is leading to. We'll get there in a minute. By demonstrating his increasing power over Egypt. By, by the time we get to... Uh, the 10th plague, Egypt is crushed. There's nothing left. And when God begins to work deliverance in your life, there is a turning point after which momentum begins to build and the hold on your life begins to loosen in the face of what God is doing and you find your eyes beginning to turn towards him instead of towards the stuff that has, control over, has controlled you. And your faith begins to rise. And that brings us to uh, the last of these plagues. I've been not keeping up with my slides here. Bad boy. Oh, that was it. Our faith begins to grow. And then that brings us to the point where we get to participate. By the time you get to um, the 10th plague, which is the slaying of the firstborn of every household in Egypt, now we're at a point where God is going to ask his people to do something. He's going to ask them to trust him. And to trust him in, in a very specific way. To trust him with regard to the shed blood that causes death to pass over. So let, let's walk through this a little bit together, just for a moment. So the Lord says to his people, I want you, as this is, the, this is on the eve of the of this last plague. He says, I want you to take the blood of a lamb, put it on the doorposts and the lintel, that beam that goes across the doorway of your home. Put some blood of the lamb on there. Now, you know, the Bible says that Jesus is like a lamb that was slain for us, a spotless lamb that was, his blood was shed for our redemption. God was prefiguring that here in these instructions about the Passover. Put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. Stay inside and death will pass over. That's where that term Passover comes from. 
Remember what Paul said about the captivity he was describing? I can't, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that's what I always do. This captivity, he says. Uh, and, and then he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, it's, this condition is so far removed from the life that God wants for me. It's really a form of death. He just calls it that. James says that you know, when, we, when we yield to temptation and sin develops in our lives, this, when it becomes full grown, it brings forth death. The same idea that these points of, of bondage in our lives are like a, a form of death. And so the Lord says to them, Put the blood on the doorpost, stay inside, and death will pass over. This is very, very significant, very, very important. Because there's going to come a point where we need to trust the Lord. And we need to trust in the power of the blood of Jesus. Now, I don't mean some sort of you know, magic phrase or incantation. Sometimes you'll see people who are uh, attempting to minister, you know, deliverance to somebody, and they'll, they'll pray something like, they'll maybe lay their hands on the person, and they'll say, in the name of Jesus, by the authority of the blood of Christ, or something like that. And those are absolutely the things that should be said in that moment. But if it's just words, if it's just some sort of, you know, incantation that we hope is going to do something in the spirit realm that's that's not what's going on when we pray that way it's because we believe that the power of the cross has broken every bondage and every grip of sin and it's uh, and the sources of that stuff in our lives and so there's going to come a point in the unfolding of your freedom and mine when God is going to uh, present you with the same opportunity to believe. To hide yourself within the covering of the blood of Jesus. But then the Bible says this body of death, that Paul, who will deliver me from this body of death? Death passes by. It is sealed off from my life. And that is no longer part of me anymore. That's no, no longer has a hold on me anymore because of the covering of the blood of Jesus. And um, uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 17, when the, when the 70 that Jesus sent out to minister in his name, first there was the 12, and then they were followed by the 70, he sent them out. He said, preach the gospel, heal the sick, and deliver the bound. And when they came back to Jesus, it says they came with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Anything that has a grip on your life or anyone that you uh, are called to minister to is subject to the authority of the, of the name of Jesus because of his cross. Now we're going to close things up for today and next week we'll begin with phase two of deliverance which is the people of Israel learning how to live as free people and walk in the freedom that God has brought them. But before we, clo before we close and walk out of here I want to just share just a little bit of my personal testimony. I was a, a Christian. I've been a, I've been a follower of Christ since a very young boy. Uh, you know, probably about five years old, I had enough understanding of who Jesus was that I, I decided 
that I wanted his forgiveness and saving grace in my life. <clears throat> and uh, so I have, you know, I've been, I've had my ups and downs through my, my teen years and so forth, but for most of my life I've been a, a follower of Christ. And I had been a pastor for, I don't know, uh, probably uh, nearly a decade. And, uh, I, you know, I was a fairly, you would probably consider me to have been a fairly successful or fruitful pastor. I had a fairly large church that I had started as a young man. I was 27 years old when I started that church. I, I think people would say, well, he's probably a pretty good pastor. But I was bound by something. I was bound by control. Now, I wouldn't have told you that at first. I didn't even know how to describe it. Uh, all I knew was that I always, I always knew what was best in every situation, and I let you know. And I, and I was always, stri you know, I always held myself to a standard of perfection. Of course, I could never reach it, but I always, you know, strived for perfection and everything, and demanded that of everybody around me. And it's it's a long story, but uh, I I nearly lost everything important to my life. I, I nearly lost my wife and family over that. I nearly lost my, my ministry. Um, I, I nearly lost my health. In fact, I was having, uh, you know, I was a very young man, and I was having physical problems, and I went to my doctor, and he's, he said, well, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. He said, well, there you go, you know. And um, anyway, it, was, it wasn't because I was a pastor. It was because I was controlling. <clears throat> So when the, <laughs> when, and so anyway, I, I'm, I'm going to skip forward. So I, I, I think I'm getting this, and I approached, when I realized I was having a problem, I still didn't know what to call it, but I, when I realized I was having a problem because my wife almost left me, <laughs> I decided, okay, well, I'm going to change, I did, I approached it the way I did everything else. I will fix things. I'll rearrange my schedule. I'll do things differently. You know, I can handle this. I'm in control. <laughs> So I thought it had all worked out, and then I went to this, uh, I went to this, take this class, a one-day class about, you know, it was a counseling um, class, and you, t you learned to, to administer this test to people that you're counseling with, it, and, you learn, and when they take it, then you learn how to, to uh, um, use what you gain, knowledge you gain from that test to help them, right? So it tells you things about the person. And part of learning to, to give this or to understand this test was we all took it. So I took the test, and then the guy who was leading the class, and there was a lot of people in this class, he took a few of them and said, I'm going to kind of give you some feedback uh, from your test to help you to see the kinds of insights you can gain. All right? Everybody with me so far? So I take this test. And uh, he's got a pile of them now that everybody's turned in. And one of the examples that he used, the first, by the way, the first example that he used was mine. So he, so he goes, who's Randy Bolt? And I'm about ready to go, okay, that's me, yeah, right here. And uh, he's, <laughs> I raise my hand, I'm right here. He points at me and he says, if you don't radically change the way you live, you are going to lose your health, your family, your ministry, and everything you love is going to fall apart. <laughs> huh? I, you know, I wanted to just crawl under the, under the chair. I, you know, I'd, and, but that was the day 
that things, the symptoms got bad enough that I cried out to God for help. And I said, God, I, don't, I can't deliver myself. I didn't even know I needed deliverance, but obviously I can't solve this. There, I, no matter how hard I try to break habits to change things, it's still the, there's still something here. I cried out to God for help. And that began a process of deliverance in my own life that, that uh, closely follows the things we just saw as God moved through the setting of his people free by these plagues. Things seemed to get worse before they got better. But there did come a point when I started to begin to see that I was not. See, I would always tell you, well, that's just how I am. I'm very anal, I'm very, you know, but I'm also very productive, and you know, I, I would tell you that's how I am. And I would think that that was a pretty good thing. Because people will give you a lot of applause if you are a highly productive workaholic kind of person. And they will reinforce that bondage in your life. I would say, well, that's just how, and then I, but the Lord began to help me to see, no, that's not who you are. That's the way the enemy has distorted who you are. And and that began to cause whatever it was that had a hold of me, that control thing, to begin to, to be back on its heels, begin to loosen its grip on me. That was a turning point. It wasn't over yet by a long shot. There were more acts of deliverance that God was going to have to, to do in my life. But ultimately, I came to that place where I, I said, God, I can trust you now. I'm going to hide myself in the covering of the blood of Jesus. And I'm going to trust you to free me from this. Not just help me cope with it, but free me from it. And he did. Now, I'm still, I'm still tempted from time to time. Anybody who knows me well or works with me or lives with me, as the case of my wife, knows that I am tempted to be that other guy. But I am not that guy. And the fact that I am tempted just um, gives me the opportunity to resist that temptation. But that's not me anymore. And that thing doesn't have a hold on me anymore. God wants to free us from every form of bondage. This is recording number 11146 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Foursquare Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, February 22, 2015. This is the fourth message in a series titled, The Exit. This message by Randy Bolt is titled, The Finger of God Part 2.